let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. Our sermon text this morning is Mark chapter 1, verses 16 to 20. And just while you're turning there, let me reiterate the announcement that Dave made earlier uh, that our members meeting has been moved to next Sunday night. Prayer meeting will be this Sunday night, Lord willing, at 5. Members meeting next Sunday night at 5.30. Let me read to you Mark chapter 1, verses 16 to 20. Beginning in verse 16. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he, that is Jesus, saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. May our gracious God bless the reading and now the preaching of his word. This morning is our fourth Sunday in our study of Mark's gospel. You may remember Mark chapter 1 opens with the announcement that Mark's book is an account of the good news, the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In the first eight verses, Mark sets the stage for us by introducing John the Baptist, right, the prophesied forerunner of God's salvation. And then in verses 9 to 13, Mark has shown us that Jesus is the one whose way John was preparing. Jesus is the Messiah prophesied in the Old Testament, the human son of God, and he is the divine son of God. Jesus has shown up, and in him, God has come to save his people. He is the well-pleasing son of the Father. Last week in verses 14 and 15, we saw that Mark introduced us to the heart of Jesus' preaching ministry, the message that the kingdom of God is at hand. Now that Jesus is on the scene, King Jesus, anointed, prophesied King Jesus, God is asserting his kingly authority to save and to judge. And so the call is now to repent, to turn around, to submit to God's kingship and believe the good news that through Jesus, God saves those who have opposed him. The kingdom of God is at hand. That's where we pick up our narrative this morning with some monumental news having just been dropped, right? The prophesied plan of God is about to unfold. The time is fulfilled, Jesus has just said. The creator king is restoring the blessing of his reign through Jesus. The long-awaited Messiah king, he's on the scene, and his world-conquering kingdom is about to start unfolding. So what does King Jesus do next? Does he raise a royal army? Does he set up his authoritative government? Does he march directly to Jerusalem and overthrow the corrupt religious leadership and set up his throne in the temple? Does the anointed king set off to Rome to topple the empire? 
Well, actually, as we just heard, first, Jesus finds four fishermen wandering around Galilee, and he recruits them to follow him around. It's not the Bible story that we saw coming next. In fact, we kind of wonder why it's here. Why does Mark include these verses where he puts them? And why does he tell the story the way that he tells it? Why does he include what he includes and leave out what he leaves out? Mark seems to be doing several different things here. So first, Mark seems to be intentionally upending our expectations about God's kingdom. Mark does this throughout his gospel. Jesus' kingdom is everything that God had promised it would be. It is a world-sized, universe-changing reality. But the way that God's kingdom advances and the nature of the kingdom's priorities are not what we'd expect. Later in the gospel, we'll find that Jesus has to rebuke Simon Peter, and we meet in this passage, because he totally misunderstands what kind of king Jesus is. Jesus tells Peter that he's setting his mind on the things of man. He has a human-centered view of the kingdom of God. He needs a shift in his perspective about what kind of king Jesus has come to be. Over and over again, Mark loves to expose the contrast uh, between our expectations and the way God chooses to work. The second thing I think Mark is doing in this episode is that he's introducing some important characters in the drama. So Mark's account focuses quite a bit not only on Jesus himself, but on those who followed him during his earthly ministry. I've mentioned before that church tradition actually indicates that Simon Peter, Simon, we meet in this passage, who gets renamed Peter later in the gospel, he seems to have been Mark's eyewitness source for this gospel. And also James and John, who we meet in verse 19, they feature prominently throughout the story, and they're, they're important figures in the early church, important witnesses to the message and life and resurrection of Jesus. So Mark seems to be sort of introducing characters here and also establishing Peter and James and John and Andrew, but especially those three, their credibility, their authority to witness to what Jesus said and did. Because as Mark establishes from the beginning, they were with Jesus basically from the beginning of his ministry. So Mark seems to be flipping our expectations of the kingdom, introducing characters. The third thing I think Mark is doing in this story and really I think this is the main thing going on in these verses, is that Mark is beginning to show us what it means to follow Jesus. That's what Mark is doing in this passage, I think. He is starting to show us what it means, what it looks like to follow Jesus. Last week we saw that Jesus calls people to repent, to turn around, to submit to God's kingship, to believe in the good news that God saves through King Jesus. Well, one of, one of the ways that that life of repentance and faith gets described throughout Mark's gospel is as following Jesus. Early Christians used to talk about Christianity as the way, right? the path on which you followed Jesus, imitated him, obeyed him, trusted in him, walked with him through life. So it's true that Jesus is, in fact, calling Simon and Andrew and James and John to follow him in a very specific way, right? This is also a call narrative about four of the apostles. There are no apostles alive today. They occupied a unique office in redemptive history. 
Uh, But it does seem from the way that Mark tells this story and from the prominence of following language in Mark that Mark wants to teach us about what it means for all of us to follow Jesus. So with the rest of our time this morning, here is the plan. First, I just want us to walk through the passage together, note its details. And then second, I just want us to consider three things that we learn about what it means to follow Jesus. So first, a walk through the passage, and second, three things that Mark is showing us about what it means or looks like to follow Jesus. So first, let's walk through the passage together. Uh, Really, what we have in this one passage is two call narratives that follow the same pattern. These verses clearly go together, but there are sort of two cycles in them. In verses 16 to 18, we see Jesus call two brothers, Simon, who gets named Peter later, and Andrew. And in verses 19 to 20, we see him call two more brothers, James and John. And the two episodes follow an identical pattern. Call narrative number one. It's got four steps to it, okay? So call narrative one, verses 16 to 18. First step, we're told that Jesus is passing alongside the Sea of Galilee. Let me ask the AV team if at this point we can project the map of ancient Israel that we saw a few weeks ago. So remember, thank you, Mark has told us that Jesus' hometown is Nazareth, is up in the north part of the map. You can see it to the west of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, Remember that Jesus has gone down to the Jordan River, probably nearer to the Dead Sea than to the Sea of Galilee, uh, to be baptized by John, and then the Spirit drives him into the wilderness. We don't know exactly where the wilderness is. It seems to be, look at that region that's called Perea, a little bit to the west of that is where most people suspect Jesus was in the wilderness. And last week, we saw that as Jesus opens his preaching ministry, he heads back up to Galilee. Later, we'll see that his home base becomes Capernaum. If you see right at the top of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus spends a lot of time sort of uh, sailing across, back and forth across the Sea of Galilee and preaching in that region. So this story takes place with Jesus right beside on the edge of the Sea of Galilee. Thank you. You can take the map down. That's step one. Jesus is passing by the Sea of Galilee. Uh, Step two in the story, we see that Jesus sees a pair of brothers fishing in the Sea of Galilee. So that would not have been uncommon. The Sea of Galilee supported a large and moderately prosperous fishing industry in Jesus' day. Uh, And the word that Mark uses to describe these men's fishing activity, it seems to imply that what they're doing is they're taking a big circular net and kind of spinning it. One commentator or preacher said kind of like you might spin a pizza so that it would unfold and there there were weights on the edges of this net. And as it sort of unfolded in the air and fell onto the water, the weights would pull the net down to the bottom of the Sea of Galilee. And then either using a rope or diving down to the bottom, they would sort of collect the net and hope that as it had fallen, uh, it would have collected some of the fish. That was a common way to fish. So Jesus sees these fishermen brothers, Simon and Andrew, in the middle of their ordinary workday. Third step, Jesus calls these brothers to follow him. Verse 17, and Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. God willing, we'll say more about what that means in a minute. First step, Jesus is walking by the sea. Second, he sees the brothers. Third, he calls them. Fourth step, the brothers respond. 
two parts to the response. Mark says, first, they leave their nets, and second, they follow Jesus. Verse 18, and immediately, Mark loves that word immediately. He uses it often. Sometimes he uses it just to move the story along, sort of, and then next. But sometimes when he uses it, he means instantly, immediately, without delay. That seems to be what's going on here. Jesus calls them, and immediately they left their nets and followed him. Jesus is walking by the sea. He sees two brothers. He calls them. They respond. They leave what they're doing. They follow him. We get the same pattern in the second call narrative, verses 19 and 20. Again, Jesus is passing by the Sea of Galilee. It says a little further along. So apparently, James, I'm sorry, Simon and Andrew are behind him. And he spots two brothers. Step two, again, he sees two brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. They're not fishing. They're repairing or possibly cleaning, the word could mean, their nets. They're getting them ready for future use. Again, normal work day in the life of James and John. The third step, Jesus calls these brothers. Verse 19 doesn't say what he said, but assumedly he said the same thing as to Simon and Andrew. Fourth step, the brothers respond. Again, in verse 18, we saw that Simon and Andrew left their nets. Verse 20 says, James and John left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. So there you have it. That's the passage. Two parallel call narratives. Two sets of brothers whom Jesus calls to follow him. Why does Mark tell us this story? What's his point? Three things I think we see. Three points I think Mark is trying to make in the way that he tells this story. The first thing I think Mark is trying to show us is that following Jesus is supremely important. Following Jesus is supremely important. That really stands out in the way that Mark has edited the story and the things that he doesn't include in this story. So you might read our sermon passage and find it strange that it appears that four men have a sudden encounter with a total stranger and then they make a complete break with everything in their lives to follow him. But we know from other parts of the scripture that there's actually more to these events than that. So some of the things that Mark leaves out help us kind of understand the abruptness of what happens. So from John's gospel, the same John that we beat in verse 19, we know that at least Simon and Andrew, and possibly also James and John, they already would have interacted with Jesus before this story. In fact, Andrew, we know, was a disciple of John the Baptist. Uh, And John pointed Andrew to Jesus. Jesus was passing by. John was with Andrew. And he said, behold, the Lamb of God. And Andrew went from John to Jesus to follow him, got his brother Simon, and brought Simon to Jesus. It doesn't seem to be the sort of decisive following of Jesus that, that happens here, but Simon and Andrew had some prior exposure to Jesus. We also know from other parts of Scripture that the disciples seem to have maintained some kind of connection with their families and with their livelihoods. So later in Mark 1, we find that Simon Peter takes Jesus to his mother-in-law's house, right? So Jesus, Peter hasn't sort of cut everything off from his family. James and John continue to have a relationship at least with their mother. She shows up later in Mark's gospel to ask Jesus for something. You might remember that story. It also seems like Peter 
uh, retain some kind of link with his family's fishing business, right? After Jesus rises from the dead, we find that Simon Peter and James and John, they're once again in a fishing boat in Galilee. It seems likely that Peter would have entrusted the fishing business to someone else to take care of him while he followed Jesus. So none of that contradicts anything that Mark says here, and it actually kind of helps us understand it. But it does invite the question, why does Mark tell the story the way that he does? Why is Mark intentionally abrupt and selective in his account? Well, it's because Mark is making a theological point by how he tells the story. Mark says, listen, this is what you need to know. Jesus called these men to follow him, and they left whatever else was going on to follow him. That's what you need to know. Simon and Andrew left their nets, their livelihood, their probably prosperous jobs, their financial security, and they followed Jesus. Did Jesus let them use their nets again later? Are these the nets they're using at the end of the Gospel of John? Do they use Peter's boat to cross the lake? Well, maybe, but that's not the point, right? The point is these men dropped whatever they were doing to follow Jesus. James and John, they left their dad in the boat. How did Zebedee feel about that? What kind of father had Zebedee been so far? Did, did he want them to go with Jesus? Was he angry and offended by Jesus' invitation? It doesn't matter. Mark doesn't tell us. This is what you need to know. Jesus called them, and they left what they had going on and followed him. They left their dad, they left their hired servants, they left their stuff, and they followed Jesus. Mark is making the point that following Jesus is supremely important. And supreme, I pick that word intentionally. Supreme doesn't just mean very, very. It means the most. It means the highest, number one, incontestably. There is nothing that compares or competes in importance with following Jesus. Saints, our jobs are not as important as following Jesus. Our financial security is not as important as following Jesus. Our family is not as important as following Jesus. Our religious tradition is not as important as following Jesus. Finding a spouse is not as important as following Jesus. Living your best life now is not as important as following Jesus. Avoiding suffering and death, Jesus will teach later in the gospel, is not as important as following Jesus. Now, again, it's worth saying Jesus is calling Simon and Andrew and James and John to follow him in a specific way. These men are going to become 12 apostles. And, and for many people, following Jesus doesn't immediately require quitting your job or leaving your family. For some people, it does. But for many, it doesn't. But Mark's point here is if that's what it comes down to, then following Jesus is more important. If you would follow Jesus, you must be willing to leave whatever you have to leave to be with him. Might he give it back to you? Certainly. But if you would follow him, he must be first. The authority of his call must be supreme. Beloved, I am afraid 
that sometimes when we are trying to figure out what obedience to Jesus looks like, that in our reasoning, we exclude options that are uncomfortable or costly. We think to ourselves, following Jesus couldn't look like that because I don't want to give that up. Following Jesus couldn't look like that because that would be really hard. And listen, I'm, I'm not saying that hard things are inherently good. I'm not saying go find the most sacrificial and difficult way to follow Jesus that you possibly can. I'm not saying that cutting things out of your life is inherently good. Mark's not saying that. But Mark is saying that if that's what it takes to follow Jesus, there's no question which one is more important. Saints, this is, this is a tough question to answer. It's a tricky question to answer, but I think it's important that we ask, are there things, Christian, are there things in your life that Jesus is calling you to leave in order to follow him? I don't do that to send you on a rabbit trail down to your most subjective and sensitive conscience, right? But do the clear commands and priorities of Scripture and the wise advice of godly people around you and the clear conviction of the Holy Spirit, right? Do these things mean that following Jesus looks like leaving something else in your life behind? If, if there's clear sin in your life, things that are unambiguously leading you into sin or stumbling, then, then the answer is yes. Right? Are, are there other things in your life, maybe that are not clear sin, but that, that are keeping you from wholeheartedly following Jesus Christ? Saints, listen, if, if Jesus is not who Mark thinks he is, right? if Jesus is not the Son of God, if he's not the king of God's kingdom and the only savior of the world and the exclusive giver of eternal life, then Jesus is an egomaniacal cult leader who is afflicting and misleading people, right? Telling them he's more important than their family members. But listen, if Jesus is who the scriptures reveal him to be, if he is the eternal son of God who became a man to live the perfect life that we should have lived, who died the death that we deserve for our sins, if he truly rose from the dead, ascended to the right hand of the Father, and offers eternal life to anyone who will follow him, if he is the fountain of living waters and the bread of life and the creator that we were created to know, then how could it be any different? What could possibly be more important or more wonderful or more lovely than following him, right? If if we saw who Jesus was more clearly, we would understand why following him is supremely important, right? Simon and Andrew and James and John, they don't seem to be really conflicted about this decision whether or not to follow Jesus. They're not like, oh no, here comes Jesus, better row to the other side of the lake so he doesn't make me leave all the stuff that I love, right? If these men see in Jesus someone worth having at any cost, and so they follow him. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian friend, let me urge you to consider that Jesus is worth whatever it might cost you to follow him. If you'd like to learn more about what it means, what it looks like to follow Jesus, We'd be delighted to speak with you after the service. Come talk to me. Come talk to anyone that you've seen up here. We'd love to speak to you about what it means to follow Jesus 
in repentance and faith. First point, following Jesus is supremely important. Second point, following Jesus is about relationship with Jesus. Following Jesus is about relationship with Jesus. And that is to say, at the, at the dead center of what it means to follow Jesus is to know him, to be with him, to have a relationship with him. See, Jesus is not the first person in the Bible to call people to change how they live. Throughout the Old Testament, the, God sends people to call others to repentance. And the people that God sends to call others to repentance, what they do is they point to God or they point to God's word. They call people to follow the Lord or to follow the scriptures. So think of Moses in Deuteronomy 6. Moses calls the people of Israel to love the Lord. Moses points up, love the Lord with all that they are. He calls them in Deuteronomy 6 to treasure God's law. Moses points to the scriptures away from himself toward the law that God has given. Or think of the prophets, right? Think of Hosea who tells Israel, come, let us return to the Lord. Hosea pointing up, let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. Think of Malachi in Malachi chapter 4 through whom God says, remember the law of my servant Moses. Malachi pointing to the scriptures. Think of good King Josiah, who calls Israel back to obedience to the scriptures, right? Josiah doesn't say, hey, I am king, listen to me. He says, guys, we've discovered the book of the covenant. Come back to the scriptures, to the law that our God has given us. But Jesus, his call on people's lives is in one sense very different, but in another sense, it's exactly the same. Because Jesus is the God whom the Old Testament prophets had been calling us to follow. He is the Christ pointed to throughout the scriptures. So Jesus' call is not return to the Torah, although Jesus is certainly pro-scriptures. Jesus' call is not first, foremost, return to the Lord, although that's what he's calling them to do. The language that Jesus' call takes is follow me. Right? Being a Christian is about following the person, Jesus. So to be sure, being a Christian involves embracing certain beliefs. Absolutely. Being a Christian requires pursuing a certain kind of lifestyle. Absolutely true. Being a Christian lands you in a new community, the church. That's absolutely true. But the reality more fundamental than any of those things is that being a Christian means having a relationship of trust and love and obedience with the person, Jesus Christ, and through him with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. In, in calling these men to follow him, Jesus is inviting them to be with him. Later in Mark's gospel, that's going to become a term that Mark uses repeatedly to describe his disciples. He calls them those who were with him, those who were with Jesus. It's almost a technical phrase to refer to those who had chosen to follow Jesus and to be around him, to be in his circle, to obey him, to listen to him, to do life with him. So that's great for those who were on earth while Jesus walked the earth, but what about us, right? You can't go to Palestine to be with Jesus with respect to his human nature, right? Surely, 
If you had asked Simon and Andrew and James and John about relationship with Jesus or about being with Jesus, they would say that that was curtailed after he ascended into heaven, surely. But you know, actually, that's not what these men thought. That's not what they wrote. See, John, the same John that we meet in verse 19, is very likely the author of the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. And in the first few verses of the book of Revelation, John bursts into praise for Jesus. And you know what John calls him? John calls Jesus him who loves us, present tense. Jesus right now is the one who loves us, John says. John continues on to record a vision of the risen Lord Jesus in his glory. And he records that vision in the book that he's written. He says that Jesus in heaven is walking among the seven golden lampstands. And John gets told, you know what these seven golden lampstands are? You know what they symbolize? John is told those seven lampstands are God's churches. What's the meaning of the vision? Jesus is walking among the lampstands. The message is that Jesus is present by his spirit with his churches. Jesus, him who loves us. He doesn't just love us from afar like a a relative that lives in Europe. He loves us and is present with us by his spirit. And Jesus tells John to write seven letters to these seven churches among whom he dwells. Jesus doesn't open any of these letters with these words, I hope this letter finds you well. Dear church in Ephesus, I wonder how you're doing. Do you know the first words of all of the letters that Jesus says to these churches? The first words are, I know. Jesus says to the churches, I know your circumstances. I know your sufferings. I know your faithfulness to me. I know your straying. I know your coldness. I know your sin. I know your needs. Right? Jesus, in those letters, if you read them, he talks about doctrine. Jesus is very concerned about, those, uh, about doctrine that the churches are believing in those letters. Jesus talks about good works. He talks about suffering. He talks about sexual immorality. He talks about persecution and worldliness. And he talks about these things to his churches as things that are integrally wrapped up in a relationship with himself. As he does that, he's calling the churches to come to him, to trust him, to believe what he says to them, to know that he's with them and knows what's happening to them. He wants them to come to him for help and for mercy. So Christian, listen, however you feel today, I'm afraid that we talk about relationship with Jesus and instantly we think, oh, how do I feel? That's, that's actually not the most fundamental thing about our relationship with Jesus. Christian, if you're in Christ, hear this. However you feel today, then know this. Jesus Christ is the one who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Jesus Christ is present with us, with his Holy Spirit He knows everything about us, and he continually and patiently and mercifully calls us into fellowship with him. Jesus Christ wants us to hear his words in the scriptures, to bring our words to him in prayer. 
He wants us to know his affection, his present living affection for us, and to direct our affections toward him. In calling these men to follow him, Jesus is calling them into relationship with him. And it's the same for us. Jesus wants to know us. He wants us to walk with him through life. Simon Peter, we've heard from John, all of that from Revelation. That's what John from verse 19 wrote. What about Simon Peter from verse 16 in Mark 1? Well, it turns out he felt the same way John did. Simon Peter described the Christian life this way in 1 Peter chapter 1. He says to these Christians he's writing to, he says, though you have not seen Jesus, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Saints, following Jesus is about relationship with Jesus Listen, if if you're discouraged about how you feel in your relationship with Jesus, know this today. Jesus wants relationship with you. Jesus is the pursuer of his people who calls them to come after them, him. First thing we see, second thing we see in this passage, following Jesus is about relationship with Jesus. Third thing I think we see in this passage is that following Jesus means helping others to follow Jesus. Following Jesus means or includes helping others to follow Jesus. There in verse 17, Jesus says to Simon and Andrew, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. He says to Simon and Andrew, you are fishermen. You catch fish. You go after them to get them. Come follow me, apprentice with me, join with me, and I'll turn you into someone whose business it is to catch people, to snatch them by God's grace into my saving kingdom. It's interesting, that passage read for us earlier from Jeremiah 17, I'm sorry, 16, that uses the language of fishing for people. But in that passage, it seems like what God is saying there is that he will send inescapable judgment to fish out those who have sinned against him so that he might punish them. And that's right and just. But isn't it amazing that Jesus comes, he uses the same image and he brings good news to announce that God's kingdom now is one extending mercy and grace. Jesus is fishing out people to show them mercy, to include them in his saving kingdom, to catch them in the net that leads to salvation. One commentator points out that Jesus, in asking his disciples to be fishers of men, he's only asking them to do what he himself is doing with them. This is not a story about how Peter and Andrew and James and John go find Jesus. This is about Jesus going to find others. In those days, it was common for students to apprentice to rabbis, but students would have been the ones seeking out the rabbis. The student had to apply to the school, so to speak, to prove to the rabbi that he was worthy. But in this passage, Jesus is the one doing the seeking. Jesus is the one doing the pursuing. Later in John's gospel, Jesus will say to his apostles, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And by the way, Christian, if if you're following Jesus, that's true of you. 
the only reason that you chose to follow Jesus is because before the foundation of the world, before you were born, before you thought about loving or following Jesus, Jesus loved you. Jesus fished you out. He hunted you down to show you mercy. In his mercy, he called you by the gospel with the mercy that he offers to all. And if you responded to that call, you may be sure that you responded because he called you sovereignly and irresistibly by his grace through his spirit. And so now, part of what Jesus calls us to do is to extend the invitation of his mercy to others. Again, this passage is in one sense the, the calling of apostles, but, but it's true to say that the job of the apostles to be fishers of men, this gets passed on to the church. I think it's not wrong to say that in a sense, we are called to be fishers of men. In other words, if, if you want to follow Jesus, part of what that involves is helping others follow Jesus. It involves extending the mercy of the gospel to sinners like it's been extended to you. And brothers and sisters, listen, I'm so encouraged by the way that the saints at Franconia Baptist Church do this. On our Wednesday evening Zoom prayer meeting, a family from the church recently shared that they had a string of contractors come through their home. And they said, praise God, as these contractors were in our home, we were able to speak to them about the gospel briefly and to give them copies of the books that the church provides that explain the gospel. Pray for these people that God would fish them into his kingdom. Another church member shared about an opportunity to share the gospel with relatives at a funeral. Praise God. Another church member shared about the chance to speak with a person going through the same medical treatment that she had had. Their doctor connected them. And the, the woman from our church said, let me tell you how I went through that difficult season of medical treatment. I went through it with Jesus Christ as my hope. Can I tell you about him? And yes, I can talk to you about the procedure as well. Another church member asked for, for prayer for opportunities to share the gospel with her ESL students as she builds relationships with them. Another church member spoke to me about a friend at work who's adopting children and how that conversation led him to have a, a, an opportunity to discuss God's adopting grace in the gospel. Right, the same church member told me that he's excited to preach here at FBC in a few weeks, and he's inviting everyone that he can to come hear the gospel. Right, They might come to be supportive friends. He wants them to come so that they can hear about Jesus. It seems like God loves to answer prayers for opportunities to share the gospel so a few weeks ago, I was talking with a church member uh, about how I feel like I don't often have great avenues to share the gospel with my neighbors who live in the same building as I do. We see each other sort of coming and going, but they don't want to hang out, and so I kind of don't know how to share the gospel with them. And, and this church member encouraged me. He said, well, you know, might not be wise to force anything, but do pray for opportunities and be ready, you know, if the Lord gives you opportunities. I thought, okay, yeah, I'll do that for sure. I kind of thought, like, I mean, what's going to happen? Like, someone's going to show up at my door and be like, yeah, I need two eggs and the words of eternal life. Like, how is this going to happen, you know? Well, I prayed. He prayed. Two weeks later, I'm working at home, and I two, hear two people talking outside my door. So I open the door, see what's up. And it's my neighbors, two young guys my age who lived two doors down, moved in about a month ago. So I say, hey, you guys okay? They say, Yeah. We've locked ourselves out of the apartment. I said, oh, I've done that before, more than once. 
In fact, I've got a locksmith on my contacts. Would you like me to call him? And they say, yeah, absolutely, that's great. I say, hey, while he comes, do y'all want to sit in my, my apartment? They say, sure, great. So they come in, and I'm asking them about what they do, and they start asking me about what I do. And one of them says, so what made you want to become a pastor? And I thought, ah, let me tell you about him. And saints, praise God, I got to share the gospel with my neighbors. Pray for my neighbors. Pray that God would draw them to himself. Saints, what a privilege we have in joining our gracious Lord, the pursuer of sinners, in his mission of mercy, in spreading the gospel of salvation. Let me just encourage you, if, if that task of sharing the gospel, if that sounds really daunting to you, like, ah, I just, I, I've never done that, I, I don't feel like I could do that, well, first pray for the Lord's help, pray for wisdom, and maybe talk to another believer in the church who you know does this. Ask them to pray for you, for God to show you opportunities that he might have given you to be a fisher of men, to spread the net of the gospel that others might be gathered into his saving kingdom. If you don't feel like you have opportunities, pray that the Lord would give others opportunities to do this. Pray for the witness of our church, for the witness of our members in the places that God sends us throughout the week. May God help us to be faithful fishers of men by his power, by his spirit. As we close our time in this passage from the beginning of Mark's gospel this morning, I want to conclude with some words from the end of Matthew's gospel. At the beginning of his ministry here in Mark, we see that Jesus calls those who follow him to become fishers of men. And at the end of his time on earth, before he ascends into heaven, Jesus reissues the same calling in the words of the Great Commission. And notice what Jesus says. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. There's nothing more important than following Jesus. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Go fish for people with the net of the gospel, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you. Always, as you go out and do this, I go with you. You don't follow me from a distance. You follow me as one in relationship with me to whom I am available for help. Jesus says, I am with you always at the end of the age. Saints, as we go out to fish for men, we do not go out alone. We, do, we go out with the presence and the help of the Christ who loves us and has pursued us to save. Let me pray that he would help us to follow him. Father, we thank you that in your mercy you have pursued us, or that when we did not love and would not have chosen you, you loved us and chose us, that from heaven Jesus came and sought out a people for himself, bled and died for their salvation, or that we have been caught, swept by the net of your gospel into that kingdom. Lord, would we be those who walk ever more closely with you, Lord Jesus, who remember your love for us, who grow in love and in trust toward you? Lord, I pray that you would help us to be faithful, wise, prudent, eager fishers of men. Lord, would you bless our gospel witness as you send us out? 
Lord, would you give us courage and love? Would you give us opportunities, Lord, to speak to others about Jesus and help us to take them for the glory of your name? We ask these things through Jesus Christ. Amen.